So I wanted to speak tonight about compassion. So those of you who've been here know, usually on Tuesday nights, instead of a talk, there's a guided meditation that happens. And tomorrow night is the beginning of uh, meditation on compassion. So I wanted to put it in some context. The context being that of the four Brahma Viharas. First, I want to say something about repetition, since it's always very funny being in this position to come into this retreat six weeks in and to say something and to get that very funny feeling. (laughs) Somebody already said that very recently. I mean, certainly that happens in terms of quotations and stories and poems, and, and it definitely happens in terms of the teachings. And that, I think, is something that in its own way is quite beautiful. It's not, it's not very reflective of our contemporary culture, you know, which is very fast and um, likes to keep moving. So to go back and to hear the same thing again can feel like quite an affront at first. But we all, those of us who have gone to Asia to practice, have experienced that quite a bit. It's reflective of an oral tradition, what happens when teachings happen within the context of a community from person to person. And there is a tremendous amount of repetition. I can remember once going to Burma to practice with Saira Upandita, and he gave about seven nights worth of discourses on these different things one could learn from seeing consciousness, the nature of the eye door, the object, the consciousness arising, and so on. And that took about seven nights. We walk in on the eighth night, and he starts giving exactly the same teaching in terms of hearing. And I thought, no, (laughs) he's not going to do this, is he? But sure enough, we got seven days on hearing, seven days on smelling, and it just went on and on and on. And I thought, I can't believe he's doing this. He's saying exactly the same thing. He just said this. But it actually is a teaching I've never forgotten (laughs) because it really got in there. (laughs) So here you go. So the four Brahma Viharas are qualities of the heart in Buddhist teaching. The word Brahma is sometimes translated as celestial or supreme. One translation I heard of it, which I liked quite a lot, was the word best. Vihara means dwelling or abiding or home. So taken together, these four qualities can be considered our best home. The first of these qualities is metta, or loving-kindness. That, of course, is our emblem up above the doorway. The common translation of metta is is loving-kindness or love. The more literal meaning of the word is friendship. It describes a state in which we develop the art of friendship toward ourselves, and that means all aspects of ourselves, not just those parts of ourselves that we like and we proudly present to the world, and, but also those parts of ourselves that are just a little bit hidden from us, kind of vague and, and shadowy, and also those parts of ourselves that we don't like very much in the conventional sense, in the ordinary course of a day. Nonetheless, despite that, that conditioned relationship, we can learn to uncover this, this spirit of inclusion, of connection, which is friendship. It's metta. When we first came here, which was, we first moved in in uh, February of 1976, the building had been owned by the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament, and that's what it said up above the, the portico there in So in February, we got some poor person to get up on this very tall ladder, and we said, see if you can rearrange those letters so that they'll say something about us, about what we really want to represent. So they got up there and kept fooling around with the letters and then came up with metta. So through the years, 
there's been a lot of debate about that. Should we have a foreign word up there? After all, we're not in India, you know, we're not in Burma. Shouldn't it say something in English and have that insight meditation society, you know, something really prosaic? But I really have always liked the word metta up there because one thing I enjoy is when people like the the UPS delivery person calls for directions and we say, well, it's a large brick building with white pillars and it's got this word, metta. So they invariably say, what does that mean? And we get to say, oh, that means loving kindness or that means friendship. The nature, the the uniqueness of of metta as a state is that it is all-inclusive. It's including all aspects of ourselves, and ultimately it's including all beings everywhere without distinction, without exclusion, without separation. So rather than considering it a particular emotion or feeling, I think it's much wiser and much more truthful to understand metta as a view. It's, it's a level of insight or understanding. It's a way of seeing ourselves, our place in this world, the truth of how connected we all are. And this holds true for all of the Brahma Viharas. The words can easily be misunderstood. They all have common meanings, and yet mostly that is not what these particular states refer to. The next of the Brahmaviharas, after loving kindness, is compassion, which is the direct translation from the Pali word, karuna, is the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to pain. It's an actual movement of one's heart when viewing our own suffering or the suffering of someone else. So as Thich Nhat Hanh said, and as I'm sure was said earlier in this retreat, Compassion is a verb. It's an actual movement of the heart rather than thinking of it as a sentiment, as a feeling. It's very difficult to understand what compassion actually means. Once Joseph and I were teaching, this was in the former Soviet Union, we'd gone one year surreptitiously when it was still illegal to do things like teach meditation there. And we just, we went as part of a tour group and we never went to see anything. But we'd go every afternoon to people's living rooms where we'd have a translator and just a small group of people would come together and we would teach. And I spoke a lot about compassion there and I noticed that whenever I did, there was a really funny feeling in the room. So I finally sat down with the translator and I said, well, when I say compassion, what do you say? And they said, well, you know, I described the state where, you know, it's, it's this wrenching agony and it, you know, it, it feels as though someone has taken a, a stake and driven it through your heart and your heart is just broken into all these pieces. And I thought, well, no wonder, you know, there's this really funny feeling in the room. Because while any of us actually might have that kind of connotation with compassion, that we are, we are undone by seeing suffering, we're broken by it, in the particular Buddhist sense of the word, that's not what it means. Because there's something in the state of compassion, that trembling of the heart, that quivering of the heart, that points to our wholeness, points to something integral, points to something that joins all of us without, again, without separation, without distinction. And so there's a funny kind of strength. It's not a rigid strength, but a strength in, in its pervasiveness, in its all-inclusiveness, in its presence. I once had this experience, maybe some or even several of you were there, perhaps, when His Holiness the Dalai Lama came to New York City a couple of years ago and gave a series of teachings in a, a theater that was rented and then gave a public talk in Central Park. And it was a very good friend of mine who arranged the whole thing. And so 
I kind of watched from the sidelines to see the evolution of this whole event. And her big concern was how many people will come to the park? You know, this was a public event. It was free. She really wanted to to have be very open and have a lot of people and all different kinds of people show up. But there was no knowing because there was no pre-registration. And the day before the event in the park, it was pouring rain. It just rained and rained and rained. And that was kind of a dismal sign. But the next day we got up, it wasn't raining, and walked toward the park, that place in the park where the talk was going to be. And I couldn't see anything, but I could hear the sound of Tibetan monks chanting in the distance, so I just followed the sound. And then finally, suddenly just turned a corner, and there was an ocean of people there. There were tens of thousands of people there who had come to hear him speak, which was really extraordinary. The official park estimates were something like 40,000 people, but the uh, State Department, which had provided the, the security for the Dalai Lama, told my friend that they thought there were more like 250,000 people there, which is what it looked like. Just everywhere the eye could land, there were people and all kinds of people, just as she'd hoped for. So we sat and waited. There was a very particular quality of quiet, given how many people were there, just waiting for him to appear. When he finally did come and he began speaking, he said something that I found quite startling. Very soon into his talk, he said, you know, from a certain point of view, I haven't had such an easy life. He said, I had to assume power, temporal power, when I was 16. I had to flee the country into exile in my early 20s. I've had to try to keep intact a culture in exile with all of those pressures. I've had to hear daily the reports of the tremendous suffering that's going on in Tibet. He said, it hasn't been such an easy life. And then he said, but I'm pretty happy. (laughs) Which is, of course, what one senses with him, that there is something that is bright and that is free, not denying the suffering, but somehow in contact with it and still having that that feeling of, of wholeness, not being fragmented and not being broken. So he said, I'm pretty happy. He said, the reason that I'm pretty happy is because of compassion. He said, compassion makes me feel at one with others rather than so apart. And so even in the face of of dissatisfaction, of suffering, of not getting what I want, there can be happiness because of that bond of compassion. So it's not quite like the translation I had in Russia. There is some quality of sufficiency and even beauty at the same time that we are looking at suffering. It's the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to pain or suffering. So the first part of it means we have to look at the suffering. And then how we relate to it is also very critical. So before I come back to compassion, I'll just finish up the other Brahma Viharas, which we will also do in the course of the retreat. We have loving-kindness, we have compassion, we have sympathetic joy, which is the third. Just as compassion is based on being able to open to suffering, sympathetic joy is based on being able to open to pleasure or joy. It means having happiness or delight in the happiness of others. Rather than falling sway to that voice which arises so very commonly in our minds, which says, seeing someone else's success or good fortune, that voice says, ooh, you know, I would be happier if you just had a little bit less going for you right now. You know, you don't have to lose everything, but 
you know, if the light would just dim a bit, I'd really feel a lot better. It's based on the idea that that envy or jealousy is based on the idea that somehow happiness is a limited commodity in this universe and the more somebody else has, the less there's going to be for us. And so from that point of view, that view of life, naturally we look at somebody else's acquisition or, or good fortune and we think there is going to be less for us and we, we sorrow over that, we feel resentful over that. So sympathetic joy is the practice which turns that conditioning around, that has us understand that someone else's happiness is not a threat to our happiness. In fact, someone else's happiness is our happiness. Because again, we have that view, that understanding of our our basic connection. The Dalai Lama here, again, he said something really Wonderful, he said something like, it only makes sense to cultivate happiness in the happiness of others because then you increase your chances of joy six billion to one. (laughs) He said, those are very good odds. When you think about that, yeah, you don't even have to go out and make yourself happy. You just have to look at someone else's happiness and you think, oh, great. And there you are, you've accomplished it. So that's sympathetic joy. And then the last of the Brahma-viharas is the state of equanimity or balance of mind. Equanimity, which does not mean indifference, but means balance of mind, is, I often consider it as the voice of wisdom. It's the place where we understand what we can't control, where we understand a sense of limitation that's real, not imposed by our concepts or our fears or our self-deprecation, but understanding that, oh yeah, you know, I can't completely transform this universe. I'm not in control of other people's behavior. I may wish for someone to be free of suffering and then have to witness the fact that they suffer on. That's the nature of things, that we are not in final control of the unfolding of events. Everything changes. Everything is conditioned. Things arise due to causes, a multiplicity of causes. It's equanimity, that wisdom, that balance of mind. It's not resignation either, just as it's not indifference. But it really is an ability to be present no matter what, with understanding. It's that, it's that wisdom that allows those other three qualities of metta or loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy actually to open up and to be more all-inclusive, to be more boundless. Because otherwise, we are practicing what somebody once told me, they once described it as metta with an edge, you know, like get happy already. Or when I teach loving-kindness retreats, which I often do, or I, you know, I teach um, one here every February, sometimes I'll meet people afterwards, you know, in New York or somewhere, who've done that retreat, and they'll say, well, you know, I focused on my friend who was really suffering or who really was not in a good way, and, and I, you know, I focused on them, and I focused on them, and I... I used the phrases and I really concentrated and then I left the retreat and I saw them and they were as messed up as they ever were. And, and I thought, well, you know, I gave you a week. You know, why aren't you any better? Or a month or a year or whatever. But that's, that's metta with an edge. You know, it's not in the nature of things that we are going to be able to deem the unfolding of events. There's pleasure and pain. There's gain and loss. There's praise and blame. That's life. So bringing that wisdom to bear doesn't diminish our love. It actually it strengthens our love. It allows us a faculty, uh, an ability to be present no matter what. So that's where the offering of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy actually become unconditional. They become acts of generosity. And you know how it is when we give something to somebody when... It is conditional. You know, we kind of 
make the offering, we give the object, and then we wait. You know, how are they going to thank me? You know, is it going to be really big? Is it going to be appropriate to the immensity of this gift? You know, are they going to give me something? (laughs) Which is really not very generous in some ways. It's equanimity that we say endows metta with patience so that we can offer loving kindness without that demand. Well, you've got to change according to my timetable and my agenda. Said that it endows compassion with courage. Since the beginning of compassion is the acknowledgement of suffering, that's not an easy thing to do. That's not an easy thing to do at all. And we need that wisdom of equanimity of realizing we're not going to be able to eradicate all pain, that things are as they are, and the strength of heart to be present with things as they are, with some balance. We need that. Otherwise, it's not really going to be compassion. It's going to be more like that state that that person described in in the Soviet Union. And it said that we need equanimity for sympathetic joy, even to really exist. Because classically it said, although I'm sure personally this can be very different, but classically it said that of the four, sympathetic joy can tend to be the most difficult. That with rare exceptions, we're not really cruel people. If we recognize that someone is suffering and we can open to it, we will feel compassion. The problem is that so often we can't bear to recognize the suffering or we have too many defenses built up or too much delusion so that we actually can't see the suffering as suffering. We see it as something else. But if we can actually open up our awareness and recognize the suffering as suffering, very likely we will feel compassion. Whereas to actually feel delight when someone else is happy is another whole step. (laughs) of effort. It's not impossible, but it can be difficult. And we need equanimity to have that understanding that someone else's happiness isn't taking anything away from us. Equanimity with its balance is also a state of of wholeness, no matter what is going on. So that that wisdom of equanimity infuses our practice of compassion. First, we need to be able to see suffering. We need to be able to come forward, to be present, not to find it so unpalatable that we call it something else, not to find it so shameful that we can't acknowledge it in ourselves not to be so afraid of it that we disregard it in others, to be able to see, yeah, suffering is suffering. The Buddha very famously said, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. That particular quotation, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering, is often used to describe the the kind of pessimistic, nasty nature of Buddhist teaching. But it's really not meant to be pessimistic at all. I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. In fact, one kind of funny friend of mine once said, well, suffering and the end of suffering are two things. That's not one thing. (laughs) Why didn't he say I teach two things and two things only? But sometimes they are one thing, because sometimes the open-hearted acknowledgement of suffering as such is the liberation. Right there, there's something that is freed. Not to be denying it, not to be pretending, not to be cutting off from our own experience or from the state of others, because it is just so painful but really to be able to say, yeah, this is suffering. Right there, there can be 
some aspect of the end of suffering, right, contained in that. And then the other way that quotation is often used has to do with transforming, it's almost like the grid with which we view things, um, so that, for example, if we're looking at a state of mind within ourselves, a state like anger or jealousy, or somebody has something wonderful happen to them and we are seething with resentment. Rather than calling that state bad and wrong and disgusting and horrible and calling ourselves bad and wrong and disgusting and horrible for having that state, what if we saw things in the light of suffering and the end of suffering so that here this state is being experienced by us as a painful one rather than a bad one. So suffering and the end of suffering can become almost like the grid with which we view our own inner states and experiences in the world. And obviously, if we're looking at that resentment and jealousy and fear and all of those other things, and we're regarding it as horrible, then our tendency is to reject, to want to cut off, to dislike, to judge. Whereas if we regard those states and see them clearly for what they are, it's not a question of delusion, really seeing them clearly for what they are, but experiencing them as states of suffering, then the more natural tendency of the heart will be to have compassion. To have that trembling, that movement of the heart, that much presence and openness and tenderness. So it's a very different response that happens just, it happens naturally. I think that's an interesting exercise as you spend all day looking at your minds. <laughs> you know, I would suggest that you actually consciously use this and reframe your experience when, when you find yourself describing to yourself a particular mind state as bad and are starting on that long and windy road of chastising yourself for it, see if you can switch right there and say, what's well, the state of suffering? And then just see what happens. I'm trying to school myself not to say I have a bad knee. Why is it bad? <laughs> you know? But certainly with your mind states, you really make the experiment. So we need to be able to see what's happening without denying it. And we need to be able to be present with what's happening. Those first three Brahma-viharas of loving-kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy transform our minds in terms of the field of intention or motivation out of which we act. I think it's not that helpful, as I often say, to consider them as specific emotions or sentiments because then what's going to happen when you do the practice as we'll start tomorrow night is that you will seek out a particular strand of emotion and if you don't feel it you're going to think you're not doing it right there's something much more profound much deeper happening in these practices that don't have to do with with emotional states at all they have to do with the power of intention in the mind and the power of concentration these practices are done through the repetition of certain phrases, like, may I be happy, or may you be free of suffering. And as with any concentration practice, we gather all of our energy together and say just one phrase. The saying of the phrase is aiming of the heart, is the aiming of the heart. That's where the practice is working. 
you may feel a great wash of emotion, you may feel nothing. It actually doesn't matter at all. It's a revolution in our way of being to begin to pay attention to our intention. To understand that the field of motivation from which we act is an extremely significant factor both in our own happiness and in the nature of the action itself. A state like compassion won't determine what we're going to do. It will determine why we're going to do it, the place from which we are acting. So it's not a limitation. Sometimes people feel, well, you know, if I have a loving heart, then... I will necessarily be, and then whatever image is associated with that, you know, I will allow myself to be hurt and abused, and I won't say anything. I'm just going to smile, you know, because after all, I'm developing a loving heart, and it would be wrong to, you know, to say no, or I'll let other people be harmed, and I won't do anything because, you know, I'm compassionate, and This is a very, very important point. It's the field of intention that is completely transformed through these practices. It doesn't mean that our action will will become limited or smaller. These aren't meant to make our lives smaller. They're meant to make our lives bigger. From the Buddhist point of view, you can divide action, anything we do or say, Uh, into three aspects. The first is the intention. It's the place from which we are acting. And this is considered to be the crucial energetic component of the action. This is where the karmic seed is planted. This is, in some ways, it's it's the most resonant nature of the action. And the very same action can come from many different kinds of motivations. So, for example, if I reached down and picked up this book to hand to one of you, the place within me which is motivating that activity can be anything. I may be offering you this book because I like you and I want you to have it, or I may be offering you this book because here I am in front of a room full of people and I think, well, hey, you know, I'll give you this book and everyone will think I'm really generous. Or I may offer you the book because you have a book I want and I think, well, you know, if I give you this book, maybe you'll give me that book. And It could be any number of different heart spaces, different motivations giving rise to the action. All anybody sees is my hand going down and lifting up an object and moving it forward. But from an example like that, you can tell why the motivation is so crucial. Because your hand, there's nothing there, you know, it's, it's just a mechanical action. But the place within from which it's arising, that can be anything. And so that's where the energy is. It's in the intention. It's very, very powerful. And then the next aspect of the action has to do with its skillfulness or unskillfulness. And here, what's called for is a greater kind of mindfulness or wisdom. We have to pay attention to context. We have to pay attention to where we are. We have to pay attention to what's most appropriate, what seems most useful. We have to bring all kinds of understanding, as much as we can have, to bear on that, on that moment. So, for example, maybe out of a beautiful genuinely wonderful motivation, I decide to give somebody this book. And then I might have to stop and think, well, you know, I only have one book, and there are all these people here. Maybe this is the kind of thing that's best done privately. Maybe it's best done in a a time and place that is other than here. Maybe it's best done in a way that won't hurt other people. You know, we have to really try to open up our field of awareness and pay attention. And so that demands a very big and open kind of mindfulness. That's why intention doesn't necessarily determine one particular course of action. We have to bring in as much wisdom as we can. 
And then the last aspect of action is the immediate result. And we can understand that in a lot of different ways. We can see it as the result that's right in front of us. You know, I hand someone the book. They distantly thank me and they walk away. That doesn't necessarily mean that they won't read the book tomorrow. They won't have a crisis in their life next week and reach for the book. We don't know what's going to happen past that first moment. It also has to do with what happens particularly in the realm of praise and blame as we make that offering. And here, again, the Buddha counsels equanimity. You know, maybe I, out of a beautiful motivation, decide to give someone this book, and I really pay attention to the context, to my situation, to the environment, I give it in a very skillful way. No, but the person who, we'll have to change this for retreat land, but the person I gave the book to just um, picked a note up off the bulletin board, you know, and found out that they won $10 million in the lottery. You know, they bought the ticket on their way in. And, you know, the person's ecstatic, and I hand them this book, and they could not care less about this book. You know, what does that mean about me? What does it mean about the quality of my generosity? What does it mean about the quality of my heart? Nothing. But there's the place where, where we fixate, where we determine whether we have integrity or not, whether we've acted well or not, where we determine who we are, what we deserve. And yet here's the, the arena of action that we actually can't do anything about we can and do work very hard on changing our field of motivation, which is crucial. We do that through practices like the Brahmaviharas. And we do change our skillfulness through learning, through paying attention, through getting feedback, through making mistakes, through being ever more mindful. But the actual immediate result, especially in terms of praise and blame, is something we can't do anything about. And yet this is where we continually demand control, and this is where our hearts continually break. Where we wish someone well, and they don't get well, and they don't thank us. We give someone a gift. They don't respond in quite the way we think is appropriate. There's a a great story from the time of the Buddha, which I've always liked, where this man came to the monastery of the Buddha and asked, he wanted to learn something about the Buddha's teaching, but the very first person he came upon that day was a monk who had taken a temporary vow of silence. So... When this man asked him, please tell me something of the Buddha's teaching, the monk didn't say anything, and the man became furious, and he stomped away. So the man came back a second day, and he came upon another disciple of the Buddha's who was renowned not just for his great practice experience and realization, but also for his his very erudite knowledge of the teachings. And so when this man asked him, will you tell me something of the Buddha's teaching, the the monk responded with an extremely long, elaborate, theoretical discourse, and the man became really furious, and he stomped away. So the same man came back a third day, came upon a third disciple of the Buddha's, this monk named Ananda, and it said that Ananda, having heard what happened on the first day, having heard what happened on the second day, was careful to say something, but not too much, and the man got really angry. He said something like, how dare you treat such profound matters so sketchily. So he stomped away. And this group of people went off to see the Buddha, and they said, Oh, Lord Buddha, this is what happened on the first day. This is what happened on the second day. This is what happened on the third day. What do you have to say? The Buddha responded by saying, There's always blame in this world. He said, If you say nothing, some people will blame you. If you say a lot, some people will blame you. If you say just a little bit, some people will blame you. There's always blame in this world. 
And it's not that we don't care, and it's certainly not that we don't notice, but how much do we care is the question. Can we find some refuge in the, the quality of motivation that we were bringing to bear in the situation, in the degree of our skillfulness to whatever degree it was, it was there, and have greater balance, which is wisdom, with not being able to control the results. Once after my, my first book, Loving Kindness, came out, I was in California and had lunch with somebody who said to me, you know, Sharon, you wrote that book in such a way that it's really like being with you. It's just like having a conversation with you. And I was so, I was ecstatic. I was so happy. I thought, wow, you know, what an incredible thing to say. It was my first book, and I'd always wanted to be a writer, and, you know, I'd never done it before, and, you know, it just seemed like the most massive kind of compliment. And I was so jazzed by it that I actually, I was having dinner that same night with a whole other group of people, and I repeated the comment that this person had made at lunch. This woman at the dinner table looked at me and said, that's not true. She said, I'm reading your book. It's nothing like being with you. And I thought, okay. (laughs) I can be ecstatic at lunch and depressed at dinner. Or I could take a moment and remember, it's the same book. You know, it's just one book that I wrote from whatever motivation was guiding me at the time with whatever level of skill I could bring forth at the time. One person responded in one way. Another person responded in another way. And believe me, it's not that I didn't notice, you know, and it's not that I didn't care. I definitely felt it. But how much do we feel it? How much do we deny the, the power and the purity of our own, our own generosity, our own offering, because of something that we could never hope to control, ever, ever? Every encounter, every moment, we are coming together, all of us in this, we are born by the sea of conditions. You know, if I'm about to hand someone this book, what do I say? You know, like, don't look at the bulletin board before you come here. You know, don't think, because if you think, you might be distracted. You know, so come as a totally blank slate so that I can make my wonderful offering and you can appreciate it to the degree it needs to be appreciated. Life isn't like that. We are all coming together, each of us. Each moment is actually the coming together of all of these different conditions. We are each bringing them to this moment, and they are what is creating this reality right now. We could never hope to control that. And yet, it doesn't mean that we do nothing. It's that understanding that allows us to have a full-hearted presence when things are going well and things are not going so well, when we're receiving praise, when we're receiving blame, when we are offering compassion and it seems to be effective and when it doesn't. So this is the, it's like the nature of, of both of those qualities, compassion and equanimity or loving kindness and equanimity. Compassion is the trembling of the heart in response to pain. It is the offering of our presence rather than withdrawing or recoiling or trying to pretend something else is happening, whether we're looking at our own pain or we're looking at someone else's. It's purity, the the nature of the equanimity that infuses it has to do with being able to be present while yet acknowledging our inability to control the outcome. When I was writing my second book, having written it, I went through that, I know several of you are probably writers, I went through that horrible period where I was trying to find a title for it, and I couldn't do it. I was teaching a course in California, actually, with this very same team of people, with Joseph and Stephen Kamala and Miyoshin. And I was absolutely obsessed with trying to find a title for the book. I kept getting email from the publisher with a whole list of titles, none of which I liked. And I asked all of my friends I was teaching with, you know, please try to come up with a title. And one of them actually 
came into the meditation hall in California and said, I'm not going to sit near you anymore because all that happens when I sit near you is I sit and think of book titles for you and it's driving me crazy. But I just kept trying and trying and trying and couldn't come up with anything. And then I came back here in February and was teaching and Miyoshin actually was giving a talk one night and she read this quotation from a very renowned Buddhist scholar named Nyanaponikotera lived in Sri Lanka for many years, which goes, it is compassion that removes the heavy bar, opens the door to freedom, makes the narrow heart as wide as the world. Compassion takes away from the heart the inert weight, the paralyzing heaviness. It gives wings to those who cling to the lowlands of self. So I heard that phrase, makes the narrow heart as wide as the world, and I thought, that's it. <laughs> A heart as wide as the world. And so it became that. It's really, it's the very nature of compassion that it lifts us up rather than weighs us down. Even though what we're looking at is, is suffering, it's pain. It lifts us up because of the truthfulness of it, because we're not engaged in in self-deception or deception of others. We're not engaged in all of the kinds of compromises of view that can be demanded by our society. You know, let's not look at that and let's not name that and let's not pay attention to that. So the truthfulness of it is part of what is uplifting and the, the interconnectedness it reveals is part of what is so uplifting about it. It's not just we who are wanting to be happy and who are vulnerable to pain. It's in the very nature of life. Another thing the Dalai Lama said that day in Central Park was he was talking about a basis of morality that wasn't particularly religious, that didn't have to do with a certain set of beliefs, which is one of his big messages. And he said without any kind of conventional religious belief, you can have a basis for a moral life out of the understanding that all beings everywhere want to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. And it's because of ignorance, not really knowing where happiness is to be found, that we and others can cause so very much suffering for ourselves and for the world, for those around us. But that's ignorance. That's not that urge toward happiness, which we all share. We want to be happy, and life is very, very fragile. There's no one amongst us who is invulnerable, who stands apart from those movements of life all of the time. There's no one amongst us that receives only praise and is never blamed. There's no one who has only pleasure and no pain. And so when we can open to that truth, we are joining with other beings rather than feeling so isolated in our unhappiness, rather than feeling so oppressed by it. We realize that this is part of what makes us, this is part of what we all share. And that knowledge makes us have more of a sense of being part of a whole. The upliftment of compassion, especially when it's not tied to demanding a certain result, points more than anything to its essence. It's based on seeing suffering, it's open, it's resilient. And its offering is that sense of presence or solidarity without demand, because the demand would be ignorance. I'll close with my very favorite Dalai Lama story, which I think taught me very much this meaning of compassion. It was when we just a few years after we had started this place, and we were all quite young at the time, 
and being young and impetuous, we had this habit where we would invite these extremely eminent beings to come visit, thinking, oh, they'll never come. And then very often we'd receive a letter saying, well, I'm coming. So then we'd have to deal with that. And we did just that with the Dalai Lama. We sent out a letter to his office. This was 1979. It was his first trip to the United States. And we said, oh, let's invite the Dalai Lama. He's a Buddhist center. So we got a letter back one day saying, well, he's coming. And even though it was nothing in terms of security and so on, like it is now, still for us, it was, it was quite a lot. And we had to close off Pleasant Street and we had state troopers patrolling the roofs with guns and it was, you know, it was a very big deal to have him come. And so the, the whole day had, had this uh, air of quite incredible intensity. And just before he came, I'd been involved in a car accident and one of the things that had happened in the car accident was that I had broken a bone in my foot, and so I was using crutches, which I was not very dexterous with. So I was standing outside in back of about 100 people waiting for his car to pull up with this very intense scene going on with the state troopers and all of that. And I was feeling very sorry for myself. I was thinking, oh, you know, I'm stuck here way in the back, but I'm so... I'm so wretched with these crutches. You know, if I went up front, I'd probably trip and I'd fall on my face right in front of him. That wouldn't be very good, you know, so I'd better stay here in the back. But, oh, it's so terrible. I'm way in the back and feeling quite left out of things and uh, not very happy about that. And then his car pulled up and he did something, which I've seen him do many times since, but it was actually the first time I'd ever seen him do it, which is he seems to have a kind of radar for who in a crowd might be suffering the most, and he just goes there, and that was me. You know, I don't even recollect that he had time in an ordinary way to catch sight of me visually. It's just somehow he got out of the car and made a beeline through these hundred people, came up to me, and took my hand, looked me in the eye, and he said, what happened? It was a perfect moment. And it did. It has become, in a way, it's like my definition from that time on of, of compassion. Because he couldn't make the injury not have happened, and he couldn't have made me any more skillful in my use of crutches. But that terrible, corrosive feeling of being so alone and so left out and so unseen and so unacknowledged, it was gone just by his gesture of coming forward and being present. So as we, as we do this practice in the coming weeks, before we move on to sympathetic joy and then equanimity, I would urge you to think of it in this light, the transformation of the field of intention, the ability to be ever more present, and released from the idea of demanding or expecting a certain kind of result. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.